The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Welcome uh, to Genesis. I'm glad you guys are here tonight. And uh, we are finishing off uh, our series that we've been in for the past, uh, I think, eight weeks uh, called DNA. And um, some questions that we have been asking is um, we started off with a question of uh, who uh, am I? And we looked at just what it means to be human. And God answers that question of what it means to be human and that we were formed and fashioned and created in His image. And so we bear uh, the image of God and we are called to reflect His image back to uh, humanity. Meaning we're called to reflect His image and we bear His image, not someone uh, else's. So anytime we're faithful, anytime we're generous, kind, merciful, forgiving, we are reflecting back to humanity, ultimately, who God is. Uh, we looked at uh, the question of sin and just what exactly sin does, and it devastates a relationship with God, but it also begins, it mars the image of God in us. Uh, but because God loves us, he says, I don't want you to be um, separated from me, either now or for eternity. And so he sent Jesus to redeem and to reconcile us back to himself. And because of Jesus and faith in Jesus, he is restoring uh, Imago Dei, the image of God in each of us. We took a look at the mind, and God has given us the great gift of our mind, uh, incredibly creative and intelligent. And uh, we looked at the question of, how can I take all of the thoughts that I have in one day, which some people estimate as 50,000 thoughts a day, and direct all of those thoughts towards who God is, uh, learning how to take every thought captive. And then we took a look at the heart. What does it mean to love God with our core, with our essence uh, of who we are? We looked at a great verse that I wanted to read again. It's uh, Proverbs 27, 19. It says, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. And then scripture says, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of your life. And he gave a great promise in Scripture that those who have a pure heart, you will see God. And so what does it look like to protect your heart from trashing it out so that we might have a pure heart uh, to see God? So after we took a look at this question of who am I, we took a look at the question of who are we uh, as a community. And we took a look at this question of tribe, that we are created by community for community. And we asked... Um, the question of how can I just move beyond just collecting friends, a la Facebook, to actually being friends? How can I actually be part of a community that is more concerned about loving one another, loving the neighbor? And we put a pretty strong challenge, I thought, of this is going to be a community that is about loving God and loving other people. We will not build a community that is ultimately about us. And we said we're going to learn how to love God and learn how to love uh, others, the neighbor, and this is what this tribe uh, will be. And then we took a look and said, you know, every tribe is going to have a mission. And so we said, if God is a missional God, which he is, why not align our mission with God's mission, which is Jesus, which is the gospel, uh, seeking to redeem and restore, uh, reconcile humanity back to himself. So how can we, as Genesis say, we're a community that is on mission, where the mission is not community, but it's to have a community that is on mission uh, together. I don't know if you guys remember this, but before we started this series called DNA, there was a, a prequel. 
And uh, the prequel to DNA was this question of uh, how do you live a compelling life? Embedded in the DNA strand, if you can see it, there's a phrase hidden in there that just says compelling life. And you were asked, I was asked a very uh, in-your-face question of are you living a compelling life? If you are, what are you actually compelling people to do? And if you're not, why are you not living a life that is a compelling life? And we looked at, uh, are you guys still looking for it? Did you find it? It's in there, embedded ever so creatively by our designers. A compelling life. And we looked at a question that Jesus asked a man who was paralyzed for the better part of 38 years. He comes up to this guy and says, do you want to get healed? Do you want to get better? And there's another way of saying, do you want to see change? Do you want to see transformation in your life? And it was a question that I put before this community that if we're going to have a compelling life, we've got to learn how to say, God, I want to see change. I want to see transformation in my life. Now, the reality is God cares about our eternity. If he didn't, there would be no need for Jesus. God cares about where we spend our eternity but God also cares very much about how we spend our life here. So tonight where we're going to finish is how we live our life matters. It matters very much uh, to, who, to God. And, um, and because it matters to God, I hope how we actually are living now would matter uh, to us. So if we're looking to live a life that is different, a life where we see change, a life where we see transformation... Um, then we need to have a correct understanding of who God is. Because if we don't have a correct understanding of God, is either going to, we're going to look more like him if we have a correct understanding of God, but if we have a wrong understanding of God, we're not going to look anything like him, and we'll actually look more like those around us, i.e. the world. And so it's a question of who are you going to look like? Who are you going to reflect? Because we're going to reflect someone or something. Are we going to reflect God back to the world, or are we just going to reflect the world back to itself? Now, my heart, as we finish off uh, our DNA uh, series, we've invested a lot of time in just who am I, who are we as a community, but I want us to understand tonight as correctly, as best as we possibly can, who God is, because a right understanding of who God is will lead ultimately to a change, a transformed uh, life. What I like about this tonight, and I hope you catch this, is uh, we can be freed from a very fatalistic mentality that change is possible in my life because of who God is, that I don't have to be the one that uh, is always struggling with things like anger or bitterness or loneliness or unforgiveness in my heart, impurity, worry, anxiety, fear. I don't have to be that guy. I don't have to be that woman anymore ultimately because of who God is. Because who God is, I can have a right understanding of who God is will lead to change or transformation in my life. And that's where I want to finish off tonight is a correct view of who God is will lead to a changed or a transformed life. So as I do often, uh, let me encourage you to pray. Uh, just be quiet just for a minute. You guys are already doing a great job of the silence thing. You got that going. Uh, now just take a minute and talk to the Lord. Just ask God. I don't know where you've come in from. Maybe you've never even talked to God before, and maybe you haven't even talked to him all week. But just in this moment of silence, just ask God, 
Would you reveal who you actually are to me in this place tonight? Father, be good to answer uh, these prayers, our prayer. God, let your voice be the loudest voice in, in this place tonight. And God, please give us a right, a correct view and understanding of who you are. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of God, uh, comes to your mind, to your heart, what do you actually think of? Just one word, when you think of God, what do you actually think of? Maybe some of you will think of uh, good, compassionate, faithful, kind, caring. Maybe some would say indifferent, just not just, not fair. What is the one, try and narrow it down as, if you can, what is the one thing, the one word, descriptor, when you think of God, when God comes into mind to heart, what is it that you actually think of? A.W. Tozer uh, said this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we ultimately think about God will dictate not only our relationship with Him, but it will also dictate how we live. So if you described God as distant or indifferent, you'll live your life very much like that, distant and indifferent towards God. What you think about God will have a, an incredible impact in actually how you live your life. Scripture makes pretty clear, actually, over 600 times the most significant thing about who God is. Uh, I'm not going to read all 600 verses to you that deal with uh, this significance of who God is. There's an entire book written about it. It's called Leviticus. Uh, most people uh, struggle to read it because it just seems like a bunch of rules and regulations. But it's a book that paints a picture of who God is, the most significant characteristic, and it's God's holiness. These are just a few verses that speak to it. Psalm, 93, or Psalm 99, uh, verse 3 and 5 says, Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Then Exodus 15, verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. I won't read all 30 of them, but over 30 times in just the book of Isaiah alone, Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. I love Hosea verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 9. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. The Hebrew word that's usually translated as either uh, holy or sanctified or dedicated is this word uh, kadesh. And it actually just means, it, it's a word that just connotes or uh, the connotation of this word here basically means to cut off or to be separate. And so a couple examples, hopefully, to make that um, 
this idea of the common is moved from the realm of just being common to actually sacred. And so when you see, uh, for example, uh, on the seventh day, God says the seventh day is cut off, set apart, and it's actually translated in our English Bibles as holy. The seventh day is set apart or it's cut off. God has declared Saturday to be a holy day. Man showed up just in time for the weekend on the sixth day, Friday, and then on Saturday, God said this day is going to be a holy day. Example of Moses, when he's having an interaction, he's curious, and he goes to see this burning bush, and he hears the voice of God speaking from within this bush, and God says to him first, where you are standing is now sacred, it is holy ground, take off your shoes. Or there's times in the Old Testament in Samuel, uh, as well as Exodus, where the Ark of the Covenant was declared, this is holy ground, this is a holy place, not because there was anything special about the ark, but because God's presence was there. So anytime there is God's presence, holiness uh, comes with it. So holy, to be holy means holy other, H-O-H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. So God is totally separate from his creation. I want you to catch this, so let me just read this. God is morally and spiritually perfect pure, and nothing in all of created order could ever damage his holiness, meaning God is not vulnerable to evil or to corruption. He is holy, always has been, and always will be. Holy is who God is. It's not some standard that he is trying to live up to. He is the standard. So there is not this moral code of holiness that God has attained. He has defined what it actually means to be holy. And because he is holy, all of his attributes, love, justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, all of these are seen in light of that he is holy. So in his love, he is completely holy in the way he loves. In his justice, he is completely perfect, morally pure, completely other, holy other in how he distributes justice. Take that across the board in all of his attributes, all of his attributes have to be seen in light of how holy God is. I don't know if you've thought about it like this before, but it should bring us great just comfort, encouragement, that because God is absolutely holy, completely pure, completely perfect, that means in all of his dealings with you, in all of his dealings with me, because he is absolutely holy, well, I've got... I can trust God because there's nothing impure or corrupt about him. So anytime I have these thoughts where God's holding out on me or God's messing with me, that's, it's not possible because God is completely holy. There's nothing corrupt. There's nothing contaminated. There's nothing polluted about who God is. So in those moments where I start not trusting God, I'm not believing actually the most significant characteristic of who God is in that he is absolutely holy. So when thinking of the holiness of God, don't try and conjure up in your mind the most holy thing that you can think of and then like times it by a gajillion. That's not, it's not even possible. Like don't think about the most purest thing and then times it by whatever number and be like that's, that's what holiness might actually be like. So God is not simply the most holy thing we know infinitely better. 
his holiness is not, it's just, I can't even fathom this. Like just even this past week and trying to think, how am I going to put together some thoughts around the holiness of God? Absolutely overwhelming. Because I can't even fathom or picture his holiness. And for the very sole reason of I'm not God. And no one in here is God. If you thought you were, you're not. So our minds, we can't fathom who the holiness of God, because if we actually looked in the mirror and looked at his holiness, we start to realize, you know, I'm not that. I am unholy in light of his holiness. So I wanted to read a story. Um, This is from the book of Isaiah. And there was a man, the prophet Isaiah, had an incredible encounter with the holiness of God. And we can actually start to grasp a little bit his holiness when we actually see his holiness, we actually catch a glimpse of who we are. So if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Isaiah chapter 6. And it says this, let me read a few verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Okay, the king, it says in verse 1, is dead. Okay, King Uzziah was a guy who stepped into office when he was 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years. And by standards of the Old Testament, he was relatively a good king. He got messed up and jacked up with pride, got leprosy, and that was the end of his life. But for the better part of 52 years, he was actually a pretty decent king. He brought uh, a level of peace and prosperity to the land. So after 52 years, this king is now dead. And so there's some turmoil in the land of what's going to happen now? Who is going to lead these people? And so I imagine Isaiah is coming to God with these questions of, what do I do now? The king is dead. But what's pretty cool about this is Isaiah was actually about to have an encounter, not with a dead king, but the real king. And in Isaiah's, Isaiah's greatest need, his greatest need actually was to do, I don't think he actually knew this, but his greatest need was to see God. I wonder if in our life we realize what our greatest need is. So when you're in that moment of your greatest need, do you actually know what your greatest need is? When you're overwhelmed and just anxious, fearful, freaking out? Your greatest need is always to see God. And I can only imagine as Isaiah is approaching and probably going to start praying, God, what do I do? The king is now dead. Isaiah is about to be launched into his prophetic ministry. God meets his greatest need by revealing himself to Isaiah. He sees God seated on a throne. That's a picture of God as sovereign. When the world is totally turned upside down, the king now is dead. God is in the same place he always is. He is seated in control on his throne. It says the train of his robe filled the room. Now, some of you won't remember this, 
and I don't know why I remember this, but my sister made me watch Princess Diana marry uh, Prince Charles in 1981. I was about 10 years old at the time, and she was like, Michael, this will change your life. You have to watch this wedding. And Princess Diana, she was a pretty good-looking princess. I mean, nothing like Kyla, but she was a good-looking princess back in the day. And her wedding dress was phenomenal. As far as wedding dresses go, this princess had a 25-foot-long train. Now, most brides were talking like a foot, maybe, some extra baggage down at the side. When she was walking down, I mean, literally walking down the aisle to the front, her, the train of her dress was still at the back of the room. I mean, it was just absolutely phenomenal to see. And it was significant of the longer your train is, the more majestic you are. And so when I have this picture as Isaiah is saying, his train just filled the temple. It would make Princess Diana's train look silly. The train of God's robe just completely filled the temple. And the angelic realm is covering their eyes and they're singing again and again, holy, holy, holy. Now, you would think that the angelic realm might be a little bit more creative, like have another song or two or three or four in their arsenal, because they've been hanging out with God in the cosmos for a while. So you'd think that there would be something other than holy, holy, holy on their lips. Maybe like singing about, God, you're so loving, you're so awesome, you're so good, you're so kind, but they cannot stop singing again and again and again a threefold, holy, holy, holy. This is a song that is being sung over and over and over because when these angels are seeing who God is, they cannot stop singing. He is so holy. He is so other. He is so separate. Again and again. What would be your response if you saw this, if you witnessed this? I don't know about you, but I'm thinking I'd be like, wow. This is amazing. But as you go through the rest of the story, Isaiah's response is not even close to, wow. His response is, whoa. It's not, wow, I'm so, this is awesome. I'm, look at me, I'm so part of this. This is, I've been invited to this party. He catches a glimpse of just who God is, his holiness, and his first words. He doesn't join in song. It's not possible for him to yet enter in and join in the song of holy, holy, holy. He says, woe, verse 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Before we can get remade, you have to get ruined. Before you can be remade into who God has designed and and fashioned you to be, you have to come to a place of ruin. And this is, in this moment, what happens to this young prophet named Isaiah. And his greatest need, he didn't know it was his greatest need, but his greatest need was to catch a glimpse of God. And when he does, he doesn't say, wow. He says, whoa, I am absolutely ruined. Why? Because I am so unholy. What my eyes have seen, holiness, I've just caught a glimpse of how unholy I actually am. So being ruined, just so to clarify, is just recognizing that we are not holy. We're not. We're not God. 
we're not even close to being like God in his holiness. So a prerequisite to being made, being remade, is being ruined. So when we confess who God is holy and that we are unholy, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The story goes on and says this. See, this, I'm reading in verse 7. One of the angels takes one of the burning coals from the temple and brings it over to Isaiah's lips. Because Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and so God meets him in that place. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He takes what is unholy, and he declares it to be holy. So let me ask this question. I want you just to wrestle with it. Have you been ruined yet? Have you come to the place where you're just really not that impressed with you? Because I know what it's like to be impressed with myself because sometimes I can look at the wrong things. If I'm looking to feel better about myself, I always look at someone else. That's totally pride, right? But if I just catch my eyes on who God is, I'm ruined because I am nothing like him. Holy, unholy. Have you personally been ruined yet? I want this to stick before you can get remade. You have to come to a place of being ruined. And what I really love about this picture here in Isaiah 6 is when we understand God as holy, then this is the place where we can actually start to to trust God. Because if he's holy, without blemish, he's perfect. I, I can't even come up with words to describe what it means for him to be holy. Totally other, holy other, separate, cut off from creation, no stain, no blemish, completely righteous. Because I understand God to be completely holy, I can trust him. And to the person who knows how to trust God, then you can begin to rest in God. We can only find rest in our life when we actually come to a place where we have trust. And to the person who trusts and they find the place of rest, that is a person who can begin to risk. His holiness, I trust that. Because I trust that, I can rest in God no matter what happens, I can rest, meaning I can have peace. That no matter what happens in my life, I'm resting because of God's holiness. And because I've come to a place of resting in God's holiness, I can begin the journey of risking for God. Because no matter what he would ever call me to do, it's calling me from his holiness. Trust leads to rest, and rest leads to a life that will begin to risk or take risks for God. God asks the question now. This is all very sequential. So he gets to the very uh, back half of uh, Isaiah, starting in verse 8, and he says to himself, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? And Isaiah says this, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. When you get ruined, you get remade. When you trust, you rest. And when you rest, you begin to risk. So much so when God asks the question, who's going? Who is going to go? 
Who is going to be the voice? Who is going to be the hands and the feet, the heart and the mind? Who will go amongst a people that is impure and live pure? Isaiah says, I've been remade. My sins have been atoned. Send me. And you know what God says? He could have said, no, you're totally not ready. You're still not good enough. Just like 10 seconds ago, you were ruined. Now you're ready to go and represent? God doesn't say that. He says, go. Isaiah, you've got the green light. Go and tell the people this. And the rest of the message of Isaiah, all 65, 66 chapters, is all about people. We need to repent from unholiness and come back to relationship with the holy God. I went to um, school in Chicago at a place um, called Moody. And it was a school named after uh, Dwight Lyman Moody. <laughs> uh, D.L. Moody was his name. They didn't like Lyman. But... Um, all over the school, the, this quote was always talked about. I saw it in, you know, frames. And it was just kind of everywhere. And I remember when I read this quote, it was a quote that was incredibly significant to D.L. Moody's life. And I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Charles Spurgeon, but uh, one day Charles Spurgeon was a, a very famous preacher, author, just um, a guy who really walked with God. And he said this, and this is not directly to D.L. Moody. He just happened to be in the crowd that day. And he said, The world has yet to see what God can do through one person totally committed to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through one person totally committed to him. And D.L. Moody's response was simply this, By the grace of God, I will be that man. I remember when I first heard this quote um, years and years ago, my heart just resonated. It's like, by the grace of God, I want to be that guy. I want to be that person, wholly, totally committed to God. And whatever God decides to make of my life, so be it. But I want to be that guy. Over the, uh, I don't even know what time frame to put on it, but I've been thinking about this quote in light of who we are as a community. And this quote, this challenge from Charles Spurgeon has taken on a new meaning for me personally when I think about and dream about all that God would do and could do and desires to do with Genesis as a community. And so I put this question before us, this statement, and this is Spurgeon. The world has yet to see what God can do through one community totally committed to him. I want to be that guy that Spurgeon talked about. But more than just being that guy, I wonder what that community would look like. What God could do with a community that was totally committed to him. The world has yet to see what God could do with a community totally committed to him. Would you sign up for that? If this is your community, would you sign up for that? To be part of a community that's saying, you know what? We're going for it. We're not going to hold back. We will be a people, because you can't have a community of totally committed people unless it's made up of individuals who have said, yeah, that's the woman I want to be. That's the man that I want to be. Totally committed to God. I heard a pastor um, recently say this. He said, there are many who are confessional giants, but ethical midgets. There are many people who are 
confessional giants, but ethical midgets. Meaning, we know how to confess right doctrine, sound orthodoxy. We know how to say God is holy. But the back half of the quote, ethical midgets, means that we claim to believe the right things about God, but it rarely shows up in how we live for God. I don't want that to be true of us. We say all the right things about God. We come on Sunday, we sing the right songs. We like even really sing them loud of holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And we hear messages about the holiness of God. And we're like, yes, I confess that. I'm totally on board with that. But then as soon as we leave here, we live as ethical midgets. What we confess actually doesn't show up in the way we live. I don't know if you're familiar with reading Puritan literature, but uh, what I love about the Puritans is they didn't have a concept for uh, a phrase that was introduced in the 1960s called political correctness. And political correctness has seeped into the church where sometimes we're afraid to say something that might offend someone or hurt someone's feelings or might not come off as loving enough. It's kind of like when the disciples asked Jesus, like they came up to him after the Jesus, Jesus totally called out the Pharisees and like, did you know that that offended them? And Jesus is like, yes, yes, I do. This is kind of Puritan literature. This is a Puritan I'm quoting here, William Law. We are strict about attending Sunday worship, but when church is over, they are just like those that never came. In their ways of spending time and money, their cares and entertainment, they are indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Another Puritan said it like this, Why are we not holy? Is it due to our inability or is it because we don't really intend to be holy? We live with the precepts of Christianity in our heads, but something else dwells within our hearts. When I read that, I don't know about you, but I get a little cut to the heart because it comes close. Of Am I a confessional giant but an ethical midget? Do I say, do I preach, proclaim, and act one way in here, but when I walk out these doors, I'm a totally different guy. So as I begin to finish this, I wanted to ask this question of what does it really look like to be a person, a community, totally committed to God? Because if God is a person who is totally, otherly holy, what would it look like for me, for you, for us as a community called Genesis to be totally committed to Him? And the answer is we would be a people who would pursue being holy because that's who God is. Two verses I'll read to you in First Peter and then in Leviticus. It says this, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Please catch that. So be holy in all that you do, not just some of the things you do. Not like in 95% of the things that you do. No matter what you do, in all that you do, in everything that you do. It says, be holy, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that's an echo of Leviticus 19 where it says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God has called us to be like him, not those around us. So the call is to be like him not like the person you seem to think is pretty good. So when you wonder of who you want to be like, I hope you're looking at God. I hope you're looking at the image of God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes we set our standard like, I hope I could look like that guy or that woman because they seem to really love people, love God. God says, be holy because I am holy. The standard is God and only God, not someone else. So if your standard was here, you've got to jack it up way up there. Be holy because I am holy. So God's will is the holiness of his people. Now, in the Old Testament, it meant like cutting off or separating from basically living a clean life from things that were unclean. So if you've ever been confused about Old Testament law and the book of Leviticus, and it says a bunch of crazy things like, why all these laws? Old Testament holiness was seen in being separate or cut off from things that were determined by God to be unclean. He desired to see a clean people, a clean nation. But in the New Testament, holiness is not in being separate as in isolated from humanity, meaning in like a monastic community where you just go live on a mountain and you don't talk to people and you just put on a robe every day and just think about God. That's not holiness uh, as it's seen in the New Testament. Holiness is seen in Christ followers pursuing holiness or moral purity in the midst of people bent on impurity, meaning where you live, be holy there. Where you are, be holy. We're not called to be separate from the world, isolated from the world, where we create Christian communities and bubbles that are just about us. Wherever you are, that's where you are called to live and be holy, to reflect a God who is holy. So the reality, though, we live in a world where we've learned to live with unholiness so much so that it is the expected and the natural thing. We're so used to unholiness, impurity around us that we don't know any different. And I just want to call myself and call you, this community, let's raise the standard. We're not just called to settle for unholiness because that's all we know. If you're going to follow God, be in relationship with God through Jesus, this is not a good idea. This is the command that has been placed on our life, that we would be holy for the very reason that God is holy. Now, the danger, and when you talk about, I'm trying to think of practically, how do I finish this? Practically speaking, most people, give me the list. What are the things I can do and can't do? And so we create these lists of, well, you probably shouldn't drink, probably shouldn't do drugs. If you're sleeping around, probably stop sleeping around. If you're looking at porn, don't do that. Uh, if you're going to R-rated movies, maybe PG-13 movies, if you wear certain clothes, we come up with a list of just don't do this and, and do this, and you're covered. I just The problem with lists is it creates Pharisees. And it creates a people who actually are more concerned about the list than they are with God and God's call in our life to be holy. So I'm not going to create a list of just do this and don't do that. I really want you to wrestle with this question of what does it look like? What does it mean for me to be holy? I guess it has to start with a question of do you really want it? Do you really want to be, how other do you want to be? Let me just put it that way. How separate, not isolated, but how separate do you really want to be? How holy do you really want to be? How other do you really want to be? Now, if you 
answer that question by saying, no, I'm not really interested in being holy. I'm not really interested in being separate, not isolated, but other. Well, this verse will speak for itself. It's Hebrews 12, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That picture of Isaiah, if he would have shown up and just said, wow, that's a holiness, that's, that's great, I'm almost there. His picture of God, he would not have been able to see God. But his stance was, I am ruined. So if you're not interested in seeing God, if you're not interested in seeing God in your life, which I'm not sure why, then you don't need to be worried about holiness. But if you want to see God, then holiness is something that we have to say, I want to be holy. I want to be other. So if your answer is yes, I have hopefully what will be good news for you. Someone has already obtained and achieved holiness for you. I cannot follow a list and be good enough to obtain holiness. Jesus did that for you and he did that for me. In Hebrews 10, let me read um, a better part of this. Hebrews chapter 10, if you're there. If you're writing some stuff down, write down uh, Hebrews chapter 10, just the whole thing. Start at uh, verse 3. He's talking about uh, this, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. He says, But those sacrifices are annual reminders of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said this, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, this is what Jesus said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And verse 10, it says, And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if you want to be made holy once for all, Jesus has done that for us. By faith, I trust that the life he lived, which was holy, without sin, perfect, no stain, no blemish, no impurity, I trust that because of Jesus did it, Jesus in me can make me holy. If you're the person who wants the lists, you're going to spend a life uh, beating your head up against the wall. <laughs> Jesus has done for you and done for me what we could not do for ourselves, much like Isaiah. Someone had to come for him and atone for sin, and that's exactly what God has done. Be holy as I am holy. So as I ask the question, how holy do you want to be? Jesus has done that for us. My faith and my trust is in Jesus. So will your otherness, will your holiness, not just in what you confess, but in how you now live this out. Would it be seen in how you love rather than in how we hate? Anger and bitterness. Would holiness be seen in us choosing joy over jealousy? Would it be holiness seen in how we choose faith over fear or patience over worry, purity over impurity, forgiveness over unforgiveness? The New Testament and Old Testament 
uh, speaks to the call to be holy people. And tonight, as uh, we would close and prepare for communion, I just wanted to read uh, some scripture to you and just let the scripture sit with you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Uh, just as best you can, as you can listen to someone else's voice. Just listen to what God's call on your life, on my life is related to holiness. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardening of their hearts. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthy nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips, don't lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Such a great challenge there in verse 12. Live such good lives among the people who don't know God that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds the way you live and give glory to God and worship God. At the heart of this DNA series, 
was the opportunity to compel me, myself, this community to live radically different, not fractured, compartmentalized lives, but to live lives that would say we want to, if we've been created in God's image, we want to reflect God back to humanity. And the call on our life is to be holy. I've invited uh, Lindsay uh, to sing a song that just declares, you are holy. If it's helpful, again, close your eyes to listen to the words of the song, but it's really a prayer. Make it your prayer. If you have things in your life that have hindered your holiness, confess that, repent of it, for the sole reason that God is a holy God and he's invited us, called us, commanded us to be holy as he's holy. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.